This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. <clears throat> Today we're going to explore what Buddhist Dharma and some teachers, both past and present, uh, what they offer in terms of the relief of suffering, an explanation of its source, how we might be able to work with it. I know for me, it's why I'm here. So, let's begin. I asked Andy if we could do two sutras you might have noticed today. The Heart Sutra, which is the summary, the foundation of Buddhism in a nutshell, a little bit bigger than a nutshell, that's chanted in temples all around the world every day among the 500 million Buddhist practitioners. And the Metta Sutta, which is a particular sutta or sutra that to me is like wise elders It's like wonderful, wise elders giving advice. I don't know if you notice that. One of them that sticks out for me every time is, do not be submerged by the things of the world. And that for me is, uh, you could say in a nutshell, uh, the edge of my practice. So it makes a bold promise right from the start, the Heart Sutra. Avalokiteshvara. When practicing deeply, the prajnaparamita perceives that all five skandhas are empty. Skandhas are the things that, in Sanskrit terms, make up our life. And was saved from all suffering and distress. It's a very bold claim. And it should be noted that this particular version that we use I researched is a Kumara Jiva's Chinese translation. In some other translations, like of Red Pine and Musong, who I have uh, consulted quite a bit, um, that particular last part, and is relieved of all suffering and distress, is left out. But later it does go on to say that it's going to remove all fears, and uh, it does make a promise that and relieve all suffering. But to have that be right at the start, to me, is very, very bold. And one could think, that's really hyperbole. It's exaggeration. Because how many people here, believing that they have accepted the emptiness of the five skandhas, have been relieved of all suffering and distress? Raise your hands high. So we have no evidence. And this was one of the fundamental aspects that Buddha said. He said, look at the teachings. That's great. But it's experience that you must verify in your own life whether something is valid or not. It's one of the things that really attracted me to Buddhism was this wonderful acceptance of us as our own, you might say, locus of control. 
as I've struggled with this and worked with it, starting off kind of fearlessly doubting, you might say, I came to read some kind of helpful aspects of things. And one of them is that the way that this particular sutra can be helpful is after realization to relieve all suffering. That's when it could potentially be possible. This is one interpretation. So myself, not having achieved enlightenment, this would explain why I'm not why I'm still suffering. But another one that I like is that there's a concept of momentariness, momentariness, something happening in just a moment. And this is actually the reality of our world. We actually live, exist, and the only reality is this present moment, past, future, always this present moment. So, in a present moment, we may be able to find a relief from suffering. But it's for that moment. And maybe that moment lasts a longer time, or maybe it's a shorter time. But that kind of gives me some, uh, something to work with that means that this can still be true perhaps in my experience, for moments. So, a key to this realization, you might say, has to do with the concept of shunyata. You've probably heard of that. Shunyata is sometimes translated as emptiness, as the uh, insubstantiability of all things. And it's been borne out in science, um, which we're going to be discussing at 2 o'clock, more of the scientific aspects of things on the same topic of suffering and pain. That things arise and they have no what's called svabhaha, svabhava, which is uh, thingness, which is the um, inherent quality of itself. It's an arising of causes and conditions and dissipates. Now this, this sounds like, oh yeah, I get that. But that realization is something that from everything I've read, it's not something that you say, oh yeah, I read that book. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I accept that. There's emptiness, yeah. It doesn't work like that. And those of you that have studied Zen know Zen is using so many different ways you know, in the teachings of, of saying, don't rely on words. The finger that is pointing to the moon is not the moon, so the teachings, in other words. That's just an indicator. That's just something pointing to something that cannot be put into words. Alfred Korzybski, a great general semanticist, called that the unspeakable, the unspeakable mind. Can't be put into words. No amount of eloquence. Even Alan Watts, who was probably (laughs) 
my hero and one of the most eloquent speakers, acknowledge that you cannot put this experience of shunyata, of the emptiness that is at the heart, the still point of the world, you can only hint, you can give metaphors, you can point to it, but it it will never be it. So when I combine these two things, the fact that it might be only for a moment that I can obtain relief from suffering and that it's more likely to occur or occur more often if I have done all the work required to realize shunyata at a deep level, what they call deep absorption level. And that's hence why we have so many practices in Zen like the Sashin that gives at least an opportunity to experience that. So there's a futility to conceptualize thinking that we can easily fall into, I think, especially in the West, where cognitive skills are the highest value. In school, what do they measure? Cognitive skills. Um, And the heart is not really valued high. How, How would you measure it is, of course, one of the issues, but... It's not, it's not easy to get to. So, in the very deepest meaning of this, as you start uncovering layers after layers, sitting on the cushion for hours, as we do in Sashin, or if you can, come to a Zazenkai here, or just an extended sitting, and even one at home. We come to a realization that the kind of, of awareness that can imagine what shunyata is, is not this one, it's not Mark Adams, it's not this ego. There is an awareness that's possible that perhaps many of you have experienced that's beyond ego, where the ego, as they say, the body and mind fall away, at least momentarily, and you're with this enormous mystery at a very deep, deep level. That's the kind of absorption that may lead to this fundamental, deep in your soul, in your bones, understanding of shunyata that has the potential to relieve your suffering, at least momentarily. See how many qualifications I've given now. And this is just my understanding, so I want to make it clear that one of the other wonderful things I love about Zen is that we can have opinions. We can differ. We can make it our own. You can make your practice your own. And a part of the reason why I think that's acceptable is because as we look and see how Zen has traveled, actually how Buddhism has traveled from India to China, Japan, to the West, and the different countries, Sri Lanka, and the different versions Thailand, it's, uh, and Tibet, it's accredited, accredited, the cultural folk Buddhisms, you might say. And so when you look at, when you read some of these different um, versions of even our most um, fundamental thinkings, 
they can be filled with things that seem contradictory. And I attribute that to the fact that in each of the countries where it's come, it's absorbed something from that country. And it's done it in a way that makes it more acceptable, more understandable, at least initially. And um, so it's, it's kind of a very understandable, you call it a strategy, I guess, in a way. The other thing that I've been learning is that the meaning for us is really derived by action, not by even some kind of uh, ephemeral understanding, but how do we act in the world? And in some ways, this is the thing that makes Zen a slightly different strain from Theravadan. It's the ideal of the Bodhisattva that we chanted in the Metta Sutta, this beautiful, iconic image of someone who hears the cries of the world, someone that we can emulate in listening to our own friends, into our, to our own self. If the action is kind and generous, and compassionate, that's all that matters, ultimately. And this is the other thing I love about Zen. It's not required that you memorize, although it can be a wonderful practice to memorize sutras. And What's required is that you bring your full presence to everything that you do. And I'm now going to bring in the second part of the Uh, title of the talk, and that is The Noble Truths. These kind of guidelines, these fundamental primers on the way things are and how we might be able to work with. I call it work with suffering, not eliminate. Sometimes these words can really set up expectations that that can cause us a lot of problems because they can then be turned on ourselves. We can turn them on ourselves and say, well, if only I was a better meditator, or if only I understood more, if only I read more books, or I went to more people's Dharma talks, uh, if I was a better Buddhist, I would be able to understand this, and I would probably be able to escape suffering. So it's on me. And that could be true, but I'm not saying that it is in this case. No, no, it's not true. That's not true. Just making sure you're listening. (laughs) So I want to go now to something that happens. It's an example of somebody in this world, in our lifetime, or at least mine, I think all of our lifetimes, who has pursued something called finding a joyful life in the heart of pain. This is a book by Darlene Cohen, who practiced at the San Francisco Zen Center for many, many years. Maybe several of you know her or have met her. She's now passed. But as a young woman, she contracted rheumatoid arthritis, which is a debilitating disease that changed her from being this vivacious, vibrant, powerful, sexually active, 
uh, with a family, you know, a young son and a husband and, uh, and great ambitions and discipline to someone who, who needed help buttoning her shirt and helped off of the toilet and in which every step was agony. So from that starting point to the onset of this was very rapid. And you can imagine the emotions that one would go through doing that. So what she found one day, after struggling even to walk from where her apartment was near the city center in San Francisco, uh, uh, San Francisco Zen Center, just to the steps where she couldn't make it up, she discovered something, the result she attributes to time on the cushion, to that insight that we can sometimes, uh, through what I call grace, uh, enjoy. She discovered that her leg in the air felt no pain. And when she came down, there was pain. So she brought her focus onto the leg in the air. Each step. That act, which was enabled by having done so much work in concentration practice, in zazen, in the ability to bring your focus where you want to place it. Samadhi, it's called in Zen. That that wonderful jariki skill relieved her of enough suffering that she could now make it up the steps and into the zendo, and her stamina increased. And she realized that although this was applied to a very physical issue, it could be applied to many other issues. You know, what we call not just a physical pain, but an emotional pain. One where there's nothing going on physically, but some people would say is a worse kind of suffering. That there are moments that we can focus on and gain some relief. The other thing that Zazen has the potential to do, because we're talking about the things that Buddhism offers in terms of pain and suffering, it can offer a very creative uh, access to something really creative. And one of the things was, she mentions that in the morning it was really rough for her to get up out of bed and to just walk to the bathroom. And every step was agony, and she was moaning. Oh, oh, God. Damn it! She would curse. And after a while, they were having a meal and her son and husband said, you know, that really tears us up in the morning when you do that. We can do nothing to help you. We hear you suffering. And she said, yeah, but I need to verbalize it. I need to be able to make whatever noises I need to make in order to have this be tolerable. And then she thought of a solution. And the solution was, would you like to moan with me? (laughs) 
And as she got up, oh, her husband would go, oh, from where he's fixing breakfast. Her son doing the homework would go, oh, 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 this chorus happened in this house of moaning and wailing and shrieking. And she said that when she got to the, she got to the bathroom, she was so filled with love and a connection. And her son and her husband felt like they were a part of this with her. Wow. (laughs) So that creativity is a big part of Zen too. It's not just following following some kind of... uh, In fact, they call this a path, as we're going to get into, for a very good reason. Paths change. You must be observant of paths as things change, as you develop rheumatoid arthritis, as you age, as things start to fall apart, as things go wrong in your life, as the friends that you love become sick or you lose them. That path changes. And what might have been a calm part of the white water, I call, you know, they use the analogy of a river a lot. Now you hear the rapids or maybe a rapid you didn't even see overturns you and you're underwater and it's cold and it's startling and you can't believe it happened to you and it happened so fast. Where did that happen? Why? What, what happened? It can be like that. could be something you hear from the far off with a, with a feeling of dread and you know it's going to happen. But one way or another, suffering reaches us. And sometimes, just these little helps, these little lifts, as if a small hand is helping you up, can give you a slight time above the water's surface, enough to catch your breath. Even if you go back down under, Even if nothing has changed, you're still in the water. You don't know how you're going to get back in the boat. You don't know if there's a tree branch underneath that's going to grab onto your leg and drown you as people get drowned in whitewater rafting. But you have another breath, the momentariness of that. Just enough. I see us being that with each other. I think you may have noticed that. You can be like that with each other when someone else just needs a slight or a little help, kind word, hand on the hand or on the on the back or a kiss, love, some love. So that can be that thing that keeps us above water just long enough to endure. It's a great um, poem in here I want to read by a famous Zen poet many people will recognize, Ikkyu. It says, message to a monk who scribbles verse. This is in Darlene's book as she was writing this, she, she, she found this. Pain and bliss, love and hate are like a body and its shadow. Cold and warm, joy and anger, you and your condition... Delight in singing verse is a road to hell. But at hell's gate, peach blossoms, plum blossoms. Ikkyu.
So for Darlene, how Zen, how Buddhism, we'll say, helped her was in these different mindfulness techniques, these different strategies, relationship, relaxation and movement. So she was a uh, physical therapist and she helped other people who had rheumatoid arthritis do what they could. And in fact, we have this wonderful definition of wellness, which is the theme of our year of science and Buddhism. Wellness is the optimization of potential of your health. You think about that. What that means is wherever you're at, wherever you're starting from, rheumatoid arthritis, in hospice, dying from cancer, just starting off your life having fallen off a bicycle. Wherever you are, there is a way of optimizing your potential, and that is wellness. She also mentions another strategy that we don't use too much here, but that is used in the Rinzai sect of Buddhism, and that is koans. And she calls them personal koans. Koans, as you may know, is a practice in which you're often given um, like non-conceptual questions that don't have an answer uh, using your uh, discriminatory mind. And so you struggle with it. You keep asking the question day at night, and periodically you come in and you tell your teacher what you think that this means until the teacher says, okay, now you know, now you have it. And it's said that it has the ability to undermine that habitual perception that we have. I look at those as tapes that I play. I know what that is. I'm not even seeing it anymore, whatever it might be. I'm no longer actually present because it's a little easier just to be running the tapes. So the koan that she used was, what is this suffering? Well, that's kind of straight, straightforward in a way. But she said it doesn't matter because it leads to other questions. She says that koans have a self-correcting mechanism. That if you keep asking the question when you brush your teeth, when you're, after you um, get to work, uh, and throughout the day, and you struggle with that question, that it can cause a difference in the way you perceive things. It can give you some strength when you might need it. So this is another option. I was hoping that this Dharma talk would be one that offered a lot of different possibilities, like a menu. Not that each of them is something you want to do, but hopefully you would find a few things that resonate and that you might be able to do. So going back to the Dharma, pain, suffering, and the noble truths. The noble truths start off, the first noble truth, as you know, I'm sure, is the truth of dukkha in all of its different translations. Suffering, but more than that, unsatisfactoriness. Things aren't the way that we would like them. For me, I see dukkha as a fundamental judgment of what happens in, in this world. I think that might be an incorrect way of looking at it. 
and I'm working with that. So that's my edge of practice. Because over and over, people that I admire and that I find wise tell me, no, no. Don't be judging the world. It leads nowhere. The world is. And there's a word for that in Zen. Suchness. Sometimes we have it in our own language, such as it is. But suchness means it's the way it is. We lose everyone we love. Some too soon, we feel. Unfairness is the deepest taproot that has happened in my life. I recognize that. I feel things are unfair. So this is a difficult thing to accept for me, but I'm, I'm working with it. So I just want you to know I'm working with it. I'm struggling and I'm working with it. And that's why in that Metta Sutta when it says, do not be submerged by the things of the world. It hits me deep. And I say, okay. And a tool for this in this momentariness is our breath. As simple as that might sound, geez, I didn't need to come to a Dharma talk to be told I can, I can breathe. But remembering to breathe is really what the answer is, is what the strategy is. To remember to breathe in those times when you're underwater. There's this image that Norman Fisher uses of how he finds suffering to be something that can be spiritually useful, very useful, maybe even essential. And he says the way that we come to it, though, is after we've explored every possible self-help thing we can do. All the books, all the gurus, whether it be in religion, you know, understanding things, trying to get cognitive understanding of things. When that reaches a dead end, we feel like we've been thrown in the water. And the more we struggle, the more we sink. This is Norman Fisher's words. But if we relax and let go, we float. I know that as a swimmer. Many of you might be swimmers. You might recognize that. When you relax, you can float. And there's nothing holding you up. You've, you've received no further assistance. It's all from the power of looking at what it is. And then saying, ah, whatever it is, I can endure it as long as I'm alive. So there's a truth of dukkha. And there's a correlate to it, which is the chain of dependent origination, of which the Four Noble Truths are right in there, kind of the summary of of why we suffer and how we suffer. I'm not going to go into that. But the second Noble Truth is that the cause of this suffering is attachment. That's how I see it. Some people say desire or craving. And in some cases, yes, that could be a description of it. Which is why sometimes the things that we want the most, like love, cause us the greatest pain. 
that craving, that desire, that yearning, that longing that we have. So nothing is just one thing or another, is what that's saying. But we have to recognize that the cause of that suffering is the attachment to wanting things to be different. We want that person to love us. We want that person to have these kind of characteristics. We want this job to be recognizing us for whatever we've done. That fairness comes up again. The third noble truth is that it's possible to be released from this suffering. That sounds good. We're kind of back to the Heart Sutra again. There is a way? What is it? It's the fourth noble truth. And the fourth noble truth is like the remedy. And it's called the Eightfold Path. And I look at these not as a remedy for suffering, but just as helpful things that might relieve suffering here and there and that can lead to a, a, a more skillful life. So that's how I, I read that with the full recognition that if I was fully enlightened, maybe by following the Eightfold Path, I would be relieved of all suffering. But at this point, I'm with them. I want to have the right view of the way things are, not judge the world as being wrong the way it's set up. Having the right intention to do good in this world. Those are the wisdom paths in the Eightfold Path. And then to implement them with right action, skillful action, upaya it's called in Sanskrit. Learning what skillful action might be, what restraint might be. Does that have the possibility of relieving suffering in anyone's life here? Have you ever acted in such a way that relieved some of your suffering or restrained yourself from acting where you could have said or done something and you didn't, listening to some internal intuition and it actually is something that you are glad you did. That's another element of right action. Right livelihood, that should be pretty self-explanatory. But yet, what I see, and I felt it in myself, is the justification is so great to continue doing whatever might be even harmful to others. We see that on our planet in terms of sustainability. Very difficult for even the industries that are so polluting to walk away from it, knowing that it's polluting, knowing the harm it causes. Very difficult. And then the last two are right mindfulness and right concentration. And right, by the way, in this term means skillful or wise. It doesn't mean correct or like a commandment. It just means wise. And you saw how valuable the development of those skills were for Darlene Cohen. The ability to concentrate and the ability to have mindfulness. I look at those as very complementary practices. The concentration on one point the ability to move my focus while remaining open. It's a very difficult and contradictory practice, which is why it's called a practice, something that we have to do repeatedly and be mindful of. But that, to me, is the most likely 
source of how we might be skillful. How we might, and skillful in my understanding is the ability to implement what my intentions are to the extent that I have control over things, which isn't that great. (laughs) So I recognize that as well. So those are the noble truths. There's suffering. The cause of suffering is attachment to wanting things to be different. There's a way out of it, and the way out of it is the Eightfold Path. And that's the path that we're walking together here. And my question to you is, does that seem like it'll have an effect on your suffering? That's the question that each of us must ask and answer. Is that going to do it? Is that going to have an effect? And to what extent? This is the fundamentals of our practice. So we need to come to terms with it, not just chant it. So I don't know if you went to the website, but there was a couple of different uh, links One of them was to Norman Fisher's Suffering Opens Up the Path. It was in Lion's Roar, which is a Buddhist magazine. And in it, he makes the case for how important suffering has been in his life to um, generate compassion and insight into what others suffer. How he can't imagine it being otherwise. And besides all of that, whether he could imagine it It's not the case. It's not suchness. So it's again, it's a blind alley to wish it away, wish there wasn't any suffering in the world. So he's got a very practical look at that. I encourage you to read that. And on this issue, Bodhidharma had his two cents worth as well for the benefit of suffering. He said, every suffering is a Buddha seed because suffering impels mortals to seek wisdom. But you can only say that suffering gives rise to Buddhahood. You can't say that suffering is Buddhahood. Your body and mind are the field. Suffering is the seed. Wisdom is the sprout. And Buddhahood is the grain. So there's a little bit of dependent origination in that too, that Bodhidharma saw. So if that gives some direction for what our practice, how our practice looks at suffering, and how some of the wonderful teachers in the past and our sutras view things, we'll have accomplished a lot. And finally, my view and strategy for dealing with pain and suffering, because really we all need to account for our own. It's one thing to say what others say or what's written in the sutras. For me, I find love to be the greatest gift that I can receive and, and that I can give. And that love is manifested in so many different ways. Love isn't something we often talk about in Dharma talks. But it should be, I think. It can be manifested by the simplest 
smile and acknowledgement of someone. It doesn't take grand, grand gestures. But imagine a world in which that was the norm, in which we treated each other as Musong said in Heart of the Universe, with compassion and kindness, generosity. These are just fundamental human qualities. But what I see Buddhism doing is providing a reinforcement, providing a structure that makes it a continual remembrance of, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want to do. And when, and when I'm suffering, I can find some comfort in it. And I can then try what I call distraction. And that's all the ways that I'm sure all of us are aware of. There's something about being able to move my attention to something else, whether it's gardening or whether it's serving my wife breakfast in bed, why do you look so surprised? I should think of my examples. But whatever it is. And maybe that's as good as it gets. I know that's not <laughs> maybe as bold as we'd like to hear, but maybe that's as good as it gets, is to be kind, is when we're thrown in the water to... Just try to get one breath, one step at a time. Get our bearings. And I take refuge in the three jewels. I know that sounds like rhetoric, but the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Buddha are the committed teachings, which I do love them. It's the recognition in myself of the nature that I can develop. Maybe, over time, hopefully. That's what Buddha is. Dharma, of course, is the committed teachings and Dharma talks and wise counsel from friends and teachers. And the Sangha is all of you. All of you here. All the conversations I've had. And not just here too, but Everywhere I go, like an amoeba, that's my sangha. Whatever I come in contact with, the whole world. And I can take refuge in that. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.